All right. Well, again, thanks for being here. My name again is Paul Stiver. I'm one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town. It's my joy and privilege to be uh, preaching the word today. Uh, we are in week six of our sermon series, Made for God, Identity, Gender, and Sex. And so I wanted to get kick off by actually talking about game shows. Now we know the best game shows of all time, number three, actually number three is probably Family Feud. You guys watch, Steve Harvey is so funny on there that like YouTube is just clips of Steve Harvey being silly on Family Feud. All right, so Family Feud, number three. Second best game show of all time. And the best game show to watch when you're staying home sick from school. Come on. Price is right. We all know it, right? Obviously, not the same without Bob Barker. But man, those showcase showdowns, you want to guess it just right every time. I know how much that camper goes for. Uh, and then, obviously, the best game show of all time is this one, Jeopardy, uh, RIP, uh, rest in peace to Alex Trebek. Uh, but we love Jeopardy. I was thinking, why do we love game shows, though? And particularly, why Jeopardy? And I think it's partly because we love those categories that we feel like we know. There's nothing quite like sitting in a room watching Jeopardy with someone and being like, what is bananas? Or I don't know, that was the answer. But anyway, like you get the Jeopardy question right and they're like, oh, oh, you are, are do you know stuff? Are you smart? Well, it hits us right in the heart, right? That we want, want to be impressive, we want to know stuff. But then there are other categories that we don't know as much. Uh, and uh, we, we, we actually, this topic today that we're going to be discussing is probably one that for most of us, we don't know as much. And so we have much to learn and we have much Good news to hear from the Lord. So without further ado, this week's sermon is Jesus, the church, and same-sex attraction. And because it's a topical sermon, we're actually going to be bouncing all around the scriptures, but we'll also be in Matthew 16. Uh, just real quick, where we've been in the sermon series and Made for God, week one, we saw that the Bible is our authority, that's God's word, and that, uh, that it actually is life-giving to us in the way that Christ, who is the word of God, is life-giving to us. And then second week, we looked at um, that God's design for gender and sex and marriage and what that was to be about. Third week, we looked at the brokenness of that because of the fall, because of sin. Why are things the way they are? And why do we see so much not goodness in the world? Week four, we talked dating, relationships, marriage, singleness, uh, and tried to show uh, a gospel picture of those things. Week five was last week. We talked about pornography, lust, masturbation, fornication, things that tell a different story apart from God's gospel. And this week we are looking at same-sex attraction and we're considering sexual brokenness from yet another angle. And as we remind ourselves, all of us are sexually broken. On this side of the fall, none of us are perfect and we have much to learn. A few disclaimers about this week. Um, I recognize I am a uh, straight man who does not struggle with same-sex attraction. And yet I'm also an elder of this church called to steward God's word, to guide us and direct us to see what God has for us. And so I joyfully take that mantle today. We are not going to solve it all today. And in fact, part of the reason we have a class coming up on October 30th to dive more deeply into some of the things that we can't cover today. When you see how many slides I have, you're gonna be like, you really, you cut stuff? This felt like a, like a downpour of information. I promise I did cut stuff. Um, for those in the room, and I actually, I've never done this, but I want to address those listening online uh, later. Uh, I love you. I love you so much. I put in a lot of work into this sermon because I wanted to communicate that love, not just because I love you, but because God does. And so for those listening online, those listening uh, in this room, I just want to say I'm available. Uh, I welcome conversation. My email is paul at hopecc.com. I want to talk to you, whether you agree with me or disagree with me. 
I want to have conversation about this because this topic for many of us is not far removed and it can be very personal. So let's get into it. Week six, respect, honesty, truth, and love for those facing same-sex attraction. The American church has expressed different opinions about the nature, response, and implications of same-sex attraction. How does the Bible square with these varied approaches? Is identity rightly tied to one's attractions, as some suggest, or are such beliefs misguided? This week's message will look more deeply into the realities of same-sex attraction. What does the gospel proclaim amidst same-sex attractions? And so we're going to use that phrase, same-sex attraction. You'll see sometimes throughout uh, the quotes and different things, the word homosexual is used. We're going to try and, I might try and reframe that to same-sex sexual behavior just because that word has been used to uh, bully and demean people in the past. And so I kind of want to drift from that, but you'll see it in there. Um, all right, and we're going to be looking at kind of categories of church, how the church engages culture, the individual who struggles with same-sex attraction, and then how we as a church can rally and care for and be the family of God to one another. And so just starting off with the church, Ed Stetzer in an article in Outreach Magazine in June of 2020 said this. He said, the church of Jesus Christ is to be on mission as a biblically faithful, culturally relevant community for the kingdom of God. These, those become markers. The Bible is our guide under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We want to lead our churches both to engage culture and to be a countercultural community. So there's a both and there. Under the authority of God and the Holy Spirit through the scriptures, there's a both and here, engage culture and be a countercultural community. So the church is called to be three things, biblically faithful, culturally relevant, and a countercultural community. So we could think of those, and just, just quick definition on culture, just how human beings uh, engage and react to each other collectively. We'll just put it as that. Um, So we can think of these things as like a three-legged stool. So the church is a three-legged stool standing evenly in an ideal world on each of these legs. Biblically faithful, culturally relevant, and a countercultural community with the undergirding of a cross-shaped ethic that we have been saved not because of our own goodness, but because of the grace of Christ and him dying in our place on the cross. Therefore, we seek to be biblically faithful, culturally relevant, and a countercultural community community. And why talk about it this way? Why frame it this way with this three-legged stool? Because we tend to uh, emphasize or de-emphasize other things in this and cause our stool to wobble. We're going to get into that a little bit, how we can get things, uh, get things wrong. But also because the way you think about this topic, the way I think about this topic, will be framed by these realities. And so let's get into it. Uh, The church is called to be biblically faithful and contending that that looks like truth with humility, speaking the truth in love, maintaining conviction and yet showing and demonstrating compassion. Now, we can fall into errors here and have our stool wobble, as it were, uh, in two ways. Uh, We can be, if we're more, maybe more lean on the conservative side, we'll say the truth matters and we lose grace because we're so occupied with truth, we lose grace and we judge those who think that, uh, that there's good things in the world. We judge the other. Uh, or we contend maybe more toward the liberal side and say grace matters, people matter, and we lose truth and we negate truth. And we judge those then who are all about truth. I think the gospel gives us a third way, which is tolerance. And again, it's that, yes, there is absolute truth. We have God's word, his, and yet we do not possess absolute truth. We have something to stand on, yet we never single-handedly possess absolute truth. So therefore, we have truth with humility, compassion, 
and conviction. So with that in mind, let's get into the topic of, of homosexuality and use that term, our same-sex sexual behavior. What does the Bible teach about? If the Bible's our highest authority, what does it teach about this? Is homosexuality a sin? And so we get six main passages in the scriptures that talk about this. Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Genesis 19, the Levitical purity laws, homosexual behavior is addressed in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 9, or 1 by the Apostle Paul, mentioned in Jude, and then it's talked about in the context of idolatry in Romans 1. We're going to look at not all of these passages, partly because the Sodom and Gomorrah passage is dealing with a particular way of same-sex sexual sin that we're not necessarily talking about Today, something a little different than what we're talking about today. And then similarly, the Jude passage relates to that particular passage in Genesis 19. So we're going to be focusing on the other passages, so let's get into it. From the purity laws in the Old Testament, Levitical, in the book of Leviticus, verse 18.22 says this, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And then continuing Leviticus 2013, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them has done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Whoa, that feels like a lot. Let's get into it. Let's talk about it a little more. Now, what we've seen already in this sermon series and in the context particularly of Leviticus 20 is God is calling out in his word any sex that doesn't fit within his story and within his design, which we outlined in week two, if you want, you can go back and listen to that. And so in these passages, God is calling out all kinds of sexual sins, especially in Leviticus 20, that do not align with his story, this being one example of them. And then similarly, because God is trying to purify a people, that there's these drastic commands in Leviticus 20 uh, that, to be done for any of these types of sexual sins. Continuing into 1 Corinthians now, New Testament. In chapter six, it says this, speaking of wrongdoers, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And so what we see here is, again, is a list of sins now, again, in the context, various sexual sins and idolatry and other things that show a pattern of living that is rejecting of God and his goodness. And in that, then, men who have sex with men is included. So we see a pattern of living that does not seek the kingdom of God, but instead rejects God. But Paul says, that's what some of you were. Like the glory of the gospel is God takes us from sin into new life with him. And we'll talk more about that in a second. First Timothy 1 says this, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted me. And so we see a few things. This word here for homosexuality is a translational choice, but again, it actually goes back to that same word in 1 Corinthians 6 in the Greek, which is arsenokoites. 
And that word actually is two combined words that the Apostle Paul combines from the two Leviticus passages. And he does that, I think, to show that all same-sex sexual behavior is forbidden by God. And again, because it tells a different story than what God is trying to tell. So in this passage, all same-sex sexual relations are sin. And then the law here, though, is there to condemn the sinner, show them that their behavior is wrong, and drive them to Christ. So we see that in 1 Timothy. Then the big one, Romans 1, starting in verse 21, it says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So we see this exchange happening of God for creation, which we talked about last week is idolatry. And so God then judges and gives over. If that's what you want, I'll allow it. Continuing on. Verse 25, again, it says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Because of this, now verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, what is Paul doing? What is he talking about? Again, we've got to look at this in context. We've got to see this in context. He's talking about human beings making an exchange of God who is other for creation, which is same. He's talking about idolatry, that we've exchanged other for same, natural for unnatural, God for creation. So this is an illustration of idolatry. Tom Schreiner says it this way. The most important text regarding homosexuality in the New Testament is Romans 1, 26 and 27. We learn from this text and the surrounding context that all sin, including homosexuality or against same-sex sexual behavior, is a consequence of idolatry. The fundamental and root sin, therefore, is not the homosexuality or any other erroneous behavior. The sin that provokes God's wrath and leads to all other sin is the worship of the creature rather than the creator. It is the failure to give thanks and praise to the one true and living God. It is important to emphasize here, we gotta hear this, that homosexual sin is not singled out because homosexuals are particularly egregious sinners. This has been one of the great errors in the church that we've clobbered people with the idea that they are worse sinners. It's not true. We're all condemned by this. We're all indicted. As he says here, sin is an equal opportunity and democratic employer. All human beings have failed to glorify and thank God the way they should. He's saying, this is an illustration of idolatry. Schreiner continues, Paul probably focuses on homosexuality at this point because it mirrors idolatry. In other words, both idolatry and same-sex relations distort what human beings were made to do. That is, all human beings turn the world upside down. How do we do that? By worshiping self rather than God, exchanging other for same. All same-sex relations 
invert what God has intended so that human beings opt for same-sex intercourse instead of engaging in sexual intercourse with the opposite sex. So Paul calls it sin, but he uses it in context to show us all, show us all our deeper problem. All of our exchanges, all the ways we reject God. How do I know that? Because he puts it in a vice list right after this. In verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Who's the they? It's all of us. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. When we see this in context, homosexual behavior, same-sex sexual relations are used by Paul. Obviously, he's calling them sin, but he's also saying they show us our own idolatry, our own rejection of God. And we look at this list and we can't get away from it. Something in that list indicts us all and reminds us how we reject God. So we're all indicted for far more than our sexual sin alone. But here's the shock in Romans. The shock in Romans is not this. The shock in Romans is that with this, God would still have mercy on us. That's what's so shocking in Romans. That's the good news there. So then we can't use these passages as what has been called a clobber verse to beat people up and bully them as if we were better. Instead, these are conviction passages, not clobber passages, but conviction passages that indict us all and point us to our need for a savior. That's biblical faithfulness, truth with humility. All right, so the Bible always prohibits same-sex lust and same-sex behavior, but what about same-sex attraction? Is same-sex attraction a sin? Just a quick definition, same-sex attraction would look like romantic, emotional, can look like physical, uh, sexual. Directed toward members of the same sex, so men with men, women with women. But is same-sex attraction a sin? What about temptation? In the New Testament, James says this in chapter one, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Sam Elberry talks about it this way. James reminds us that temptation gives birth to sin. It's not itself sin. So the two are not the same thing. When we're tempted, we need to flee temptation and stand faithfully underneath it. If I take it that it's possible, therefore, to be tempted without sinning, and I think we can, you know why? Because in the book of Hebrews, it says of Jesus, he himself was tempted yet without sin. I don't think it's right then to say that having the capacity to be tempted is itself a sin. It's a sign of our fallenness, but I want to repent of the ways I sinfully respond to temptation. I want to flee the temptation itself. Otherwise, you're saying to somebody, even if you're not sinning, you're still sinning just because you have the capacity 
to be tempted in a certain way. So no, temptation is not sin, and yet, yes, it is a result of the fall. Rachel Gilson says it this way. Honestly, I can't read the scriptures and not say that my same-sex attraction is a part of the fall. She's saying, I see it as a part of the fall. If the things were the way they were supposed to be, I wouldn't feel this. If sin hadn't corrupted the world, I wouldn't have the temptation to eroticize relationships with women. So we get two biblically faithful approaches to sexuality. We've seen them in this series. One is faithful covenantal marriage that reflects Christ. And the other is faithful chaste singleness that reflects Christ. And in those two, both, all parties involved are called to flee sexual immorality because we are made for God. This is biblical fidelity to the truth in love. We're all sexually broken and we do have a biblically faithful approach to pursue. Now, those are not the prevailing beliefs in our culture, so how can we be culturally relevant? Again, the church is called to be culturally relevant. In fact, that's why we're preaching on these topics and taking the approach we're taking. Our goal is to equip us as a church to bring the good news of the gospel into a hurting world. To have an awareness of and an engagement with people's thoughts and struggles and challenges and then actually their own lives and to be involved in them. But we can again tend to have, fall into error in this way. For the more conservative, look to wrong in the culture and preach against those idiots. For the more liberal, we look to all the good in culture and then preach against those conservative idiots. But the gospel gives us a different way, a third way of kindness, where we are in the world and not of it. We're, we can never fully condemn culture, nor can we fully co-opt culture. We are called to be a light on a stand. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So for those who would like to abandon truth for people, we can't lose our saltiness. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. If we sit there condemning, people can't see the light of the gospel. So we see that in our culture. Culture gives us something on identity. It says, you are your sexuality. Let's talk about our specific illustration. You are your sexuality, therefore who you are is defined by your sexual desires. This is what is formational and foundational in your understanding of self. If in any way your self-expression of your sexuality is hindered, you are being hindered from being your full self. This blocking of self-actualization through sexual expression is a cardinal sin and drastic action must be taken to defend this freedom. In short, the freedom to express oneself, particularly sexually, is the greatest benefit afforded by society. We could, if we weren't sexually broken, sit here and condemn. But we fall into these things. We look to many things to build our life and our identity and our foundation on. What we see here is people are looking for light and life, purpose and meaning, identity. We can relate to that. 
It's just that we found it in Christ. The gospel says you are your saviors. Therefore, who you are belongs to and is defined by who God says you are in Christ. This is what is formational and foundational for your understanding of self. You are being renewed after the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit within you, all under the banner of God's grace to sinners, not because you were so good, but because he is. Therefore, you will be most human and most whole as you grow into the image of Christ over time. God's grace is at work in you to cause this. And it is that growth that gives freedom. In short, the freedom from sin and to be like Christ is one of the great graces of the gospel. We belong to Christ and he is central to our self-understanding. If we're not engaged in culture, we can't give this good news away. And if we drift from this good news, we've got no good news to give away. We're called to be culturally relevant. Lastly, we're called to be a countercultural community. One of the things that God does with his church is create a unique family, a ragtag bunch of rapscallions, a bunch of misfits like you and me who have so many things out of common. Is that a phrase? I think it might, I'm making it one. And yet he brings us together under the banner of Christ, people living set apart lives together with open arms to those quote unquote outside. We are different because of Jesus, but we can topple. Our stool can topple if we get this wrong. And we miss our calling to be a countercultural community. For the more conservative, you might say, we got to separate from the evil world. We'll create our own subculture that keeps them out. More liberal might say, we've got to separate from the evil conservatives. We'll create a subculture that keeps them out. But the gospel way is one of inclusion, that I'm not better than anyone. Therefore, I am redemptive, not canceling. And I'm inclusive, not withdrawn. Now, I'm going to pivot a little bit, and I want to address those in the room, and maybe you listening to this later, who struggle with same-sex attraction. I want to address the individual same-sex attracted Christian as we think of being a countercultural community. At Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26, it says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What is Jesus saying? He's saying the normal pattern of life for all Christians is to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him, because in him we will find life because he is worthy. We talked about this last week about a spiritual journey. Maybe you're in one of these camps today, not interested, curiously seeking, searching assertively. Then something radical happens. A conversion, the spirit comes into our life. We respond, we say yes to the gospel. And that changes everything about our lives. That's the faith commitment. We start experiencing new life, growing in community and making disciples. Ephesians talks about it this way. This radical shift. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world 
And then continuing on, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Why live this way? Because of these gospel realities. You have a new life, a new story, new membership in God's family, and out of that new life comes new behavior. And a quick note on cultural relevance. We are not trying to change someone's behavior as if they had to clean themselves up to be worthy of God. We're trying to bring them to this gospel that takes people from death to life and then when they've experienced that grace, behavior changes. It just does. This is radical. Wesley Hill describes it this way. He says, the early Christians' countercultural allegiance to Christ, their ethic about everything, including sex, does not, doesn't make sense apart from a set of theological convictions symbolically and narratively presented in the scripture. For instance, the goodness of God's creation, the covenant with Israel, Christ's defeat of evil, sin, and death, the inbreaking reign of God, and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, writes Scott Bader. Say, he says, viewed from the perspective of the culture, in other words, the early Christians' actions were crazy. But viewed from within the worldview of Israel's scriptures and the gospel, their actions represented the only rational option. On this side of the cross, this makes sense. It might be confusing to a watching world, but it actually makes sense to give our lives and our sexuality to God because of what he has done for us, one author says, I'm betting my whole life on the resurrection that I'm not missing out on the main event. But then we might ask, what should the, be the goal for the same, for Christian who struggles with same-sex attractions? I think the goal is not that you would become heterosexual, but that you would become holy. That you would be conformed to the image of Christ. So with that then, the goal should be seek community to fight sin with for the long haul. And the goal should be remember the gospel and who you are in God's story. Again, Wesley Hill says this. In the end, and now he's someone who struggles with same-sex attraction and has opted for the life, the faithful life of chaste singleness. He says, in the end, who, what keeps me on the path I've chosen is not so much individual proof text from scripture or the sheer weight of the church's traditional teaching against homosexual practice. Instead, it is, I think, those texts and traditions and teachings as I see them from within the story of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And the whole perspective on life in the world that flows from that story as expressed definitively in scripture. Like a piece from a jigsaw puzzle finally locked into its rightful place, the Bible and the church's no to homosexual behavior makes sense to me. It has the ring of truth, as J.B. Phillips once said of the New Testament. When I look at it as one piece within the larger Christian narrative, I, I abstain from homosexual behavior because of the power of that scriptural story. So we've got to remember who we are this is true for all of us. When we give our sexuality to God, we do that because we're remembering who we are in the story. We've crossed over from death to life. But then the question might be, can I trust God with my obedience? Typically, there are two faithful pathways that come out of someone struggling with same-sex attraction. The one that is rare and not a goal, 
but does happen, is actually ending up in a heterosexual marriage to someone of the opposite sex. This is a special commitment that two people make together knowing that, okay, I know this is part of your biography and yet we're choosing to face this together. The other is chaste singleness. But the question then is, is that gonna be worth it? Will I be lonely? It's gonna be hard. Wesley Hill again says this, there was a time in my struggle with homosexuality when I felt that the world was caving in on me. I had been living in Minneapolis, he lived here for a while, uh, for only a few months, and I felt burdened, physically so at times, by loneliness, confusion, and fear. During a brief visit back to Wheaton, Illinois, where I had graduated from college, I arranged to meet with my good friend Chris, and on a cold winter afternoon, I told him how I was feeling and asked for his help. Out of all the things Chris said to me in response that day, one sticks out. With compassion in his voice, he said, Origen, the great Christian theologian of the early church, believed that our souls existed with God before we were born. What if he were right? I don't believe he was, but imagine for a moment if he was here. Imagine yourself standing in the presence of God, looking down from heaven on the earthly life you're about to be born into, and God says to you, Wes, I'm going to send you into the world for 60 or 70 or 80 years. It will be hard. In fact, it will be more painful and confusing and distressing than you can now imagine. You will have a thorn in your flesh, a homosexual orientation that is the result of your entering a world that is that sin and death have broken, and you may wrestle with it all your life, but I will be with you. I will be watching you every step you take, guiding you by my spirit, supplying you with grace sufficient for each day, and at the end of your journey, you will see my face again, and the joy we share then will be born out of the agonies you faithfully endured by the power I gave you, and no one will take that joy, that solid resurrection joy, which if you experienced it now, would crush you with its weight away from you. Wesley Chris said, looking at me in the eye, wouldn't you say yes to the journey if you had had that conversation with God? I nodded and Chris grew stronger, his eyes flaring, deep care and concern. But you have had it in a sense. God is the author of your story. He is watching, supplying you with his spirit moment by moment. And he will raise your body from the dead to live with him and all the great company of the redeemed forever. And the joy you will have in that moment will be yours for all eternity. Can you endure knowing that? Can you keep walking the lonely road if you remember he's looking on and delights to help you persevere? Your struggle isn't a mindless, unobserved string of random disappointments, I heard Chris say that day, and faithfulness is never a gamble. It will be worth it. The joy then will be worth the struggle now. And this applies to all of us. We all have thorns in the flesh, things in our biography that seek to pull us away from Christ. Jesus will be worth it. And in fact, we actually, we need our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters in what ways do same-sex attracted brothers and sisters faithfully pursuing holiness proclaim the gospel of Christ to us? First, we saw the countercultural witness, but we see when you live this out, we get to see a picture of Jesus being worthy, that he's worthy of submitting to, of following. You show us what holiness looks like, and you teach us what real family and friendship is. So what can it be what can it look like then to be a church that cares well for those who wrestle with same-sex attraction? Maybe asking the question, if I share this struggle with my small group and accountability, what should I expect? The, to, you'll, you should expect to find the family of God. 
caring for you the way that we need care. Pointing you and reminding you of the gospel. You should expect to find family now. Not just a future joy, but family now. In Mark chapter 10, it says it this way. Peter, always boasting, right, says, then Peter spoke up. We've left everything to follow you. Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel. No one who's done this will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. This present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying the gospel has relational cost now. It does. But it also has relational gain. What is that relational gain? Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children. The family of God. God gives us his church. He calls us out of various places to one another to be his unique family goes beyond the nuclear family, nuclear. A family that shares life. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul describes it this way. Instead, we were like young children among you just as a nursing mother cares for her children. So we cared for you because we loved you so much. Church family, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Family that is life sharing. Family that overflows with hospitality, generosity, and open lives because we know the truly hospitable one, the truly welcoming Savior who is self-giving. This should be all of our pattern toward one another. So what then can it look like to be the family of God? I'm gonna put some things in front of us. These are ways we can include our brothers and sisters. not because they're single or not because they're same-sex attracted, but because they're in the family of God. Just a few things for us to consider as a springboard. Consider our own loneliness. Times we feel most lonely, we all face it. Consider when might they be lonely and include them. Oh, you're going to a wedding? Let's ride together. We're going to the same one. I know you got that doctor's appointment coming up. Can I drive you? Can I sit in the waiting room for you, with you? Valentine's Day is coming up. Do you want to join us for dinner? We can invite people into our lives, our holidays, regular mealtimes. Maybe we can have someone be the first to meet our new baby or hear of our new pregnancy. Or maybe we have them babysit. We can celebrate birthdays. We can write gifts, give gifts, write notes and letters. We can consider our decisions as if they mattered to them as well. In fact, we can include them, invite them into our decision-making process. Thinking about moving, thinking about a job. We're looking at buying a house. Would you want to stay with us? If we got a house with an extra room, would you maybe even want to live with us long term? Travel together, plan family vacation together, give them a house key. We can hug our friends. We can grow old with them. Let's be family to one another. Jesus says it this way in John 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. 
when Christ wants to pinpoint the greatest form of love, it's not marriage. It's actually sacrificial love of friends. It's being the family of God, namely laying down one's life for his friends. And we won't do this until we see that that's who Christ is. Christ is the one who suffered the greatest relational cost, the forsakenness of his father on the cross that we might have the greatest relational gain, fellowship with God and belonging to one another in the church. He is the tangible touch of God to human beings broken by our sin and our rejection of God. He comes to earth. He unites himself with us. He identifies with us and he dies for us. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's what Christ does for us. So then we get to be tangible bringers of that grace to one another. I want to look at this illustration. It's kind of small, so I'll read it. Because in God's family, we actually get to be the flesh and blood, tangible grace to one another. This is in the picture of a parent and child, but we actually show this to one another when we remind each other of that good news. So it's a nighttime blessing of gospel love. It's apparent to a child with maybe a hand on the head or looking in the eyes. The parent says, do you see my eyes? The child says, yes. Can you see that I see your eyes? The child says, yes. Do you know that I love you? Yes. Do you know that I love you no matter what good things you do? Yes. Do you know that I love you no matter what bad things you do? Yes. Who else loves you like that? God does. Even more than me? Yes. Rest in that love. We make this grace, because of Christ, now we get to make this grace flesh and blood for our friends. Here's the grace of God who brings us into his family and says, you are secure in me. When we see Christ as the biblically faithful one who spoke the truth, in love, as the one who was in the world yet holy, as the one who gave his life so we could have eternal life and fellowship with God and one another. When we see Christ as the Savior who makes the love of God this tangible for us, then we will be the kind of church that brings the love of God in the gospel to a world that is hurting and in need of healing and a Savior. We'll be biblically faithful culturally relevant, countercultural community. So as we close, I just want to say Jesus is worthy. He saw you as worth dying for. He is worth our lives. He's worth our sexuality. He's worth all of us. Today might be the first day you actually get to say yes to that. Love to have you say yes to Jesus. Come talk to us after the service. Say yeah. You can put your faith in Christ today and receive his grace. And then lastly, we're the family of God. Because of Christ, we have one another. So let's look to him as our example as we lay down our lives, invite people into them for one another. We're gonna move to a time of communion. This is another tangible way to remember God's grace. When we look at the bread, the wafer, we remember Christ's body broken for us. When we look at the cup, the juice, we remember Christ's blood shed for us. And we get to worship God that he brings us into his family through the blood of Christ and that he's worthy. 
I'm going to pray and the worship team's going to come back up. We're going to take communion and close with a couple songs. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the story you write is one of mercy. Even and especially when the stories we write are of rejecting you. Your love overcomes our rejection. Your grace overpowers our sin. And you bring us into your family, the church. So God, I pray that you would work in our hearts and our lives to transform us, to be like your son, and to be a family that cares well for one another, that you would receive the glory and the honor and the praise. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.